we've been lying to ourselves so long we don't know the truth when we see it. Today I sit down with international human rights lawyer David Maidis. For nearly two decades now, he has been one of the leading researchers examining the evidence of forced organ harvesting in China. The medical profession here in the U.S. needs to start looking at the facts and not simply accept Chinese government statements about how good they are at face value. On Monday night, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the first ever U.S. bill to hold the perpetrators of organ trafficking crimes accountable. Obviously, if you kill somebody in the U.S. for the organs, you're going to be prosecuted. It should be the same if you leave the country and then come back. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. David Maidis, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for inviting me. David, you once a long time ago coined the phrase, a crime yet to be seen on this planet, if I recall correctly. Mm. Um, and th this is what I want to talk about today, was what's called forced organ harvesting. How you came to discover this and you know where we are today. Well, I've been doing international human rights work uh, more or less uh, all my professional life. And there was this woman with a pseudonym, Annie, that made a public statement actually in Washington in it was March uh, 2006, saying that her ex-husband had been harvesting uh, corneas of Falun Gong practitioners uh, in Sujiatin Hospital in Shenyang City in Liaoneng Province in uh, China. Uh, other doctors in the hospital had been harvesting other organs. The Falun Gong practitioners were killed through organ extraction. Their bodies uh, were cremated. Uh, she said he was doing this between 2003 and 2005. So then the coalition, an NGO, the Coalition to Investigate Persecution Against the Falun Gong, decided to uh, get an investigation going uh, about what Annie said. And they had uh, a list of 20 people that maybe they thought could do the investigation. And I was uh, one of the 20. The reason I did it, I mean, by that time, I was well used to people coming to me about various human rights violations, and obviously I can't do everything. Uh, and uh, often I could say, well, you, you could go to the media, you could go to your member of parliament, you could uh, go to a human rights uh, NGO, uh, you could uh, just take a court case. I mean, there's uh, other ways of dealing with this. Uh, but I realized that this issue couldn't be dealt with in an easy way, and there wasn't an obvious alternative. Uh, because what I'm told straight up is if this happened, no bodies, everybody uh, is cremated, so there's no autopsies. Uh, there's no witnesses except perpetrators and victims. Everything happens in a closed uh, environment. There's no documents uh, except uh, the uh, Chinese hospital government uh, prison records, which are not accessible. There's no crime scene. Uh, the operating room is cleaned up immediately afterwards. And so even if this is true, how do you establish that's true? So obviously, uh, when I was asked to do this, uh, I didn't know it was true or not, but I also knew that it was going to take a lot of research. Uh, it wasn't going to be a quick and easy fix where I could suggest someone do this, do that. Uh, and so I took it not on the basis that I would try to show 
that what Annie said was true, but uh, simply that I would try to come to some conclusion one way or, or, or the other, rather than just Annie said this and the Chinese government said that, and who knows. Uh, and so what I started uh, doing with David Kilgore is, is conducting evidentiary trails, specific elements that would either prove or, or disprove what Annie said. A lot of my prior work uh, had to do uh, with the Holocaust. I mean, that's what sort of got me involved uh, in, in human rights initially. That I mean, I'm, I, I'm Jewish, and uh, all four of my grandparents came to uh, Winnipeg before World War One, and I wasn't personally affected by the Holocaust, but I was well aware that if the Nazis, rather than the Allied forces, had won World War II, that neither I nor any Jewish person would be alive today. And so I, I knew what Annie said could be possible. I didn't obviously know whether it was true, but I knew it could be possible. So I was uh, conducted the, these evidentiary trials, and there was lots of them, uh, dozens in each direction. And uh, I was just talking to somebody recently, or was on a panel with somebody recently, who said it took him a year to go through all my research. Uh, the conclusion that, that Ian Kilgore reached was not the result of one particular striking piece of evidence. It, it, it was the accumulation of all the evidence that was put together. And every, every piece of evidence I looked at was archived. I mean, not just in translation, but in the original Chinese as well, so that anybody who wants to can go through all the evidence themselves, and, and everybody who's done to. And some people have done that. As I say, it's a very time-consuming job, but everybody who's done that has come to the same conclusion that I and David Kilgore did, that this was indeed happening, that what Annie said was true. But even we went beyond that. We didn't say, okay, what Annie said was true between 2003 and 2005 in Sujiatin. We, we said it was happening uh, throughout China, uh, it was happening from 2001, and it was continuing uh, at the time of our report. And so uh, that's the, that's basically uh, how we started, uh, how we got involved. I know you say there isn't one particular piece of evidence which seals the deal, but what would, what were the are there particular pieces of evidence that really made you realize, that took you to the next step to realize that this, this was something that was real? The Chinese government uh, historically flipped on Falun Gong. Uh, the, initially, when it started in 1992, they were encouraging it uh, because it was beneficial to health and cut down costs in the health system. Falun Gong grew from a standing start to the point where it was more popular than the Communist Party. That By the time the party dis uh, switched on it, uh, in 1999, there was an estimated, um, well, according to government estimates, 70 million uh, practitioners. According to practitioner estimates, 100 million practitioners. And, and the Communist Party at that time was 60, 60 million members. And there was 3,000 practice stations in Beijing because a lot of the exercises were being done outdoors. And you could see it everywhere. And uh, the party just kind of uh, got worried about its own popularity in the face of the popularity of Falun Gong, which wasn't at the time anti-communist, but was non-communist. I mean, the beliefs were not communist party beliefs. I mean, it wasn't political, but uh, it was just something else. And so the, uh, the party switched, I mean, not just being switching from for to against, it switched its complete narrative. Instead of saying 
it's good for health, they're saying it's bad for health. <laughs> and they constructed this, this narrative about uh, how awful uh, it was. So uh, th there was this repression and this mass detention, and people who were detained, uh, I mean, the detention uh, was a reaction to the protest about the initial repression. Uh, because initially within the Falun Gong community, there's complete incomprehension. I mean. Uh, the party was encouraging it. it was it was exercise is good for health, and uh, there was this kind of uh, belief that somehow there'd been a mistake, there'd been a misunderstanding, uh, because most people are not familiar with the inner dynamics of the Communist Party, and uh, so you got these uh, protests sort of saying Falun Gong was good, uh, as if. The party had made a mistake and thought it was bad, whereas in fact it was the, that was the party's problem with Van Gogh that it was good, and so you'd get these mass detentions, uh, and then people would be asked to recant if they didn't recant voluntarily, they'd be tortured. Uh, if they recanted after torture, uh, they'd be released, uh, and if they didn't recant after torture, they'd disappear. I mean, one of the strands of evidence, I talked to Falun Gong practitioners who uh, got out of detention, got out of China. What did you see? What happened? Uh, and they told me a number of things. At this time, I mean, some of them may have heard what Annie said, but most of them had no idea about organ harvesting. And one of the things they said is there was people who self-identified and people who didn't self-identify. The reason was that the repression in, in China by the Communist Party went through stages. Uh, at first, it was simply a catch-and-release system. The policy of repression was, uh, it was decided in June, announced in July of, of 1999, and, and then there was some protests, and, and, and there was a catch-and-release saying, don't do it again. And, but then the, the people released, their, their home environment would be victimized for allowing these people to practice Falun Gong. And so then they'd protest again, and this time they wouldn't say who they were to, to protect the home environment. And so the people who got out would say, well, there was all these uh, people who didn't self-identify. The, the jailers didn't know who they were, and the family didn't know where they were. So that was an extremely vulnerable population. Uh, that was one thing. Another thing they said was, we were blood tested, organ examined, other prisoners were not. We don't know why. I mean, this was actually something they weren't kind of volunteering. I mean, what they wanted to talk about is the torture, uh, the abuse. But uh, I was able to, you know, spend enough time with them to find out the, that this was going on as well. I mean, it was just a complete mystery to them why this was going on. I mean, it obviously wasn't for their health because they were being tortured, uh, but it's necessary for organ transplants because you need blood type compatibility and ideally even tissue type compatibility. And I'd meet these people in different places around the world. They hadn't talked to each other, they hadn't heard of organ harvesting, and they all said the same thing. Blood tested, organ examined, just us, nobody else. Don't know why. Uh, and, and weren't eager to tell us about it, wanted to talk about something else. So, so that was something, that was very striking to me that this was happening. That was one thing. There's another thing uh, that, that really uh, kind of struck me. I mean, one of the sources of evidence we had was uh, investigators calling into Chinese hospitals, pretending to be relatives of patients who needed transplants and saying, do you have organs of uh, Falun Gong on the basis that Falun Gong are healthy and their organs are healthy. And across China, we got uh, admissions, or, yes, come on down, or go somewhere else, or uh, you can find it here, but not with us. And so we, we had all, uh, all those statements. And 
I mean, the statements themselves, uh, I, I was prepared to say, okay, maybe they're just trying to make a sale, who knows. But uh, one of the things that struck me afterwards is that the Chinese government actually made a documentary about our report. And it was done for Phoenix TV in Mandarin in Hong Kong. And they interviewed one of the doctors, uh, our, our investigator called, and uh, the, they, they presented him with a, a transcript of the interview. And they said to him, did you receive this call? He says, yes. Did you say these things? He said, yes, except anything that mentions Falun Gong. I mean, basically, uh, the, the, the transcript said, uh, well, we used to uh, do this. I actually went to prison myself and picked out these people. Uh, but now the, we're a civilian hospital, and now the military hospital down the road is doing it exclusively. Go down there. That, that was basically the This was in the documentary? Well, this was our conversation. They presented him with the transcript of the documentary. He says, yes, I was interviewed. Yes, I said these things, except the stuff about Falun Gong. He, he basically is accusing us of fiddling with the transcript. But what they didn't say was in the documentary that this wasn't just the transcript. This was a recording. And we have a recording. Interweaving seamlessly in his own voice the stuff he denies having said and the stuff he admits having said. Uh, and I mean, uh, I don't know, even know if that would have been technologically possible, but I knew very well we didn't do that. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, as I said, like with every piece of evidence, uh, I mean, because the Chinese government just comes out with nonsense, uh, the argument, I had to think of the, not only the arguments for, but also the arguments against. I had no doubt the callers made the calls and the uh, people at the other end said what they said. But the, the answer could have been, we were just trying to make a sale. We were making it up to please the customer, so to speak. But they didn't say that. I mean, they came up with such a farcical explanation, uh, which was obviously not true. I mean, they didn't even have the ingenuity to think up a, a plausible fa false answer. So uh, th that struck me as well. I mean, David Kilgore used to say there's in this area no smoking scalpel. But this kind of half admission by this doctor we interviewed uh, was, I would say, pretty striking. <laughs> It's almost unbelievable. You basically you got independent corroboration from the doctor himself that he had been. Well, if you look at our, our data, uh, you know, the, uh, the Chinese government says, "Oh, it's all coming from Falun Gong." Well, I know that that's not the case because, I mean, the Falun Gong community learned about this from us rather than the other way around. Also, a lot of the material, most of the material, comes from Chinese official sources, uh, hospital data, uh, the, uh, their, their statistics, and they're fiddling with statistics. I mean, this is a, another uh, very odd thing. Uh, there was this uh, Chinese doctor, Xi Binyi, uh, who we quoted, the, uh, just about transplant volumes. He says, we've done 90,000 uh, transplants uh, at, at some particular point in time, total at that time. So we quoted him. And the UN Rapporteur on Torture and Religious Intolerance at the time, uh, Manfred uh, Nowak and uh, Asma Jahangir, uh, they asked the Chinese government, what do you say about this? So 
they say Xi Binyi never said that. But the actual article where he was quoted as saying it remained on a Chinese official website at the time that they sent in this reply to reporters. I mean, they've now taken it down. They have a tendency, it's kind of a rolling cover-up. Every time I cite one of their sources, it disappears. And, but of course, I archived everything, or, or the Wayback Machine, which is a, a, its own website, archives everything. I mean, the Chinese government faces a, a dual problem, or they're trying to do two things at once. They want to boast about their accomplishments in transplantation. They're selling transplants around the world. They have brokers, they have advertisements, they have, when we started, they had price lists. Uh, but, I mean, the price lists are gone, but the brokers and the advertisements are still there. I mean, you can still see them. And so they're trying to promote this business. Uh, even today, you're saying? Uh, well, yeah, even yeah. today, they're yeah. still, oh, absolutely. Uh, you look at the website, uh, Love Handy, uh, it's uh, promoting uh, transplantations in, in, in China. And uh, I should say that today there's, there's a big increase in Uyghur organs. So they're trying to promote both, uh, and yet, on the other hand, they're trying to cover what they're doing, but it's very hard to do both at the same time. Talk about what they're doing publicly, promote it publicly, advertise it publicly, and then say it isn't happening. <laughs> So they leave these evidentiary trails all over the place. Uh, and, and it's only when they see the, how uh, we're looking at this and how uh, it, it shows what they're doing that it, it kind of disappears. Do you view this as a kind of a genocide? Uh, yes. Uh, I actually wrote an article uh, uh, with Torsten uh, Trey and Maria Chung about this, which calls it a cold genocide. It's one of the reasons, amongst many, uh, that this, this genocide hasn't got the intention that other genocides have, because it's a, a slow-moving genocide. It's not everybody being killed all at once or, is, or within a short period of time. It's been stretching out over decades. I mean, this is now, uh, it started 2001, this is 2023. It's been going on for 22 years now. and. Uh, there was this China tribunal, and they debated whether was there an intent uh, to commit genocide. And in, in my view, there, there is, because first of all, genocide be, can be committed in whole or in part. Secondly, uh, genocide can be committed uh, with knowledge. Uh, it, you, you can get the requisite intent with knowledge and uh, or willful blindness. Uh, and uh, there is some uncertainty because, uh, well, people would recant. Uh, and then they wouldn't be killed. But my reaction to that is the perpetrator defines the group, and if the perpetrator says the recanter isn't part of the group, then the fact of genocide is still being committed, uh, and the intent to commit genocide is still there again, uh, against the, uh, the group. Hey, everyone. I've got a special announcement. We're launching a Sunday Watch Party series. Many of you have told us that you want to share some of our best episodes with your friends and family, so they can be more informed about what's going on. So every Sunday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, we'll be re-premiering some of our best American Thought Leaders episodes for subscribers and non-subscribers alike. It's free to everybody. And if you have a suggestion for the next American Thought Leaders episode that you'd like to see for our Sunday Watch Party, tag us on Twitter at hashtag ATL Sunday Watch Party. Again, that's hashtag ATL Sunday Watch Party, or email us at atl at epochtimes.com. I look forward to seeing you all on the live chat this Sunday. I'm just going to jump in for the benefit of our audience that to, to get to, to call something genocide, there has to be an intent to destroy a group of people. 
Yes, that's right. Well, any criminal act, uh, it's not just uh, genocide. Any criminal act, you've got to have both the actual act and the intent to commit the act. Like, uh, if, if you cause somebody's death, but it's an accident, it's not murder. But if you intend to cause somebody's death, then it becomes murder. Well, the reason I just mentioned this is because I know that part of the debate of the China Tribunal was there's a strong profit motive. It's a billion-dollar industry. So, you know, the argument, as bizarre as this argument is, is that, well, the pro if it's a profit motive, it's not necessarily an intent to destroy a group of people. They're just doing it for the money. Well, uh, there's two things I would say about that. Uh, one is uh, you've got to have the requisite intent, but you could have more than one intent. There's such a thing as a mixed intent. Uh, it, it, you know, people were making money out of the Holocaust by selling teeth and gold in teeth and stealing from the people they killed. That may have been a, a partial motivation, motivation, but there's no doubt the, the real motivation, the primary motivation was not that. Also, of course, with a genocide, you're dealing with a lot of actors, a lot of victims, but also a lot of perpetrators. And and it, the perpetrators represent a cross-section of, of humanity with uh, with a wide range of motives. I mean, some of them may be doing it because they're told, some of them may be doing it because of peer pressure, some of them may be doing it for profit, but what's driving this is, is, is not money. I mean, the Communist Party didn't repress Falun Gong for money. <laughs> they repressed Falun Gong because it was too popular. In their view, it threatened the uh, hegemony of the Communist Party in China. You know, I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier because I haven't really thought about this much, but often I've actually heard this. In the Holocaust, you couldn't decide not to be Jewish, right? Basically, you had to live with that. And according to the Nazi approach, you're, you needed to be destroyed if you were Jewish. For Falun Gong practitioners, you can decide not to be a Falun Gong practitioner. You can recant, right? And so a number of people over the years have told me well, it's a completely different situation for this reason. Well, I would say that's generally true of, of each genocide, that it has its unique characteristics. Uh, I mean, no two genocides are factually completely identical, and, and that's what, to a certain extent, makes it harder to engage people with a new form of genocide, because it's not like the old one. Uh, and sure, uh, that, uh, that was true, but uh, also, I mean, the, the Nazi definition of who was Jewish really didn't have very much to do with who in reality was Jewish. Uh, I mean, you could have, have, I think, one grandparent who was Jewish, and the Nazis would say, that's enough. And this concept, it's not objectively who's part of the group, it's who the perpetrator sees the group is. I mean, that's the targeting is determined by the targeter, not by an independent outside objective observer. And of course, also the Nazis were invading foreign countries to kill Jews, and the Chinese aren't doing that, at least not yet, but uh, to kill and to kill Falun Gong. Uh, although one has to be worried uh, what they would do if they invaded Taiwan, but because there's a a lot of practitioners there. But what I would say is, is well, what I said before, if you leave the group because you recant, and the Chinese say, you're not Falun Gong anymore, and it doesn't change legally the fact of genocide because the genocide is intent to destroy the group. And if you're not part of the group, it's irrelevant to the issue of genocide. So we've been talking a bit about the China Tribunal. The China Tribunal, you know, took your initial work and, uh, you know, there had been substantially more evidence that had been accumulated since, and they looked through all of it and established that, you know, yet another time that this was real, that it was happening. Um, 
you've spent quite a bit of time over the years trying to have some sort of government action, have you know, free countries try to do something about this, make change. What is the most substantial change that you've seen? And how, I guess, how difficult has it been to make this happen? I was talking before about evidentiary trails. And uh, one of the evidentiary trails uh, we were looking at was legal, ethical remedies, uh, standards. And in this field, they didn't exist, nothing, anywhere. In China, they actually had laws that said you could extract organs without consent of either the person or the family. There was a 79 law that said you could do it for research. There was an 84 law that said you could do it for prisoners. It was based on finding a corpse, uh, uh, that if you found a body and the body was unclaimed, then you could use uh, the organs for research, 79 law, 84 law, found a prisoner. A uh, prisoner's body unclaimed. They used the organs uh, without the consent of the person or the family. After our report came out, they passed a law saying consent's required, but they didn't repeal the 7984 laws. They're still on the books. Uh, and I mean, just ordinary legal interpretation is the specific prevails over the general. So uh, uh, th those are still in the books. And everywhere else around the world, like in Canada, the US, if you kill someone for the organs, you can be prosecuted if you kill them in the U.S. If, or if you kill them in Canada. But if you go to China and kill someone for their organs, the Chinese law didn't, uh, didn't do anything about it. I mean, especially if it's, it's, if it's a government killing them. The, the government controls the, the courts, the prosecutors, the investigators, the police, the prisons, so on. So the, uh, the government's not going to do anything about it. And if you came back, the, the Canadian laws, the American laws, no, didn't have anything to say about it. Same with ethical standards. Um, uh, the transplant profession, the medical profession, never anticipated this. Uh, and so n n nowhere did it say, oh, uh, don't give people records, don't give people prescriptions, uh, tell people somebody might be killed for their organs if they go to China. And, uh, I mean, the whole issue was just untouched. Uh, and so once the report came out, uh, uh, one of the things, I mean, David Kilgore and I are both lawyers, and so uh, one of the things we try to do is, is advocate for a legal and ethical system that say this shouldn't happen. Now, uh, there are, I think, 19 countries now which have passed extraterritorial legislation which says if you leave your country and go abroad and get involved in the killing of somebody for their organs and you come back, you can be prosecuted for that. If you're a broker that's advertising it, or an advertiser, or, or if you were actually there and doing it, and then come to visit our country, you can be prosecuted. I mean, but you know, 19 countries is 194 countries. <laughs> There's still a long way to go. The U.S. Canada just recently passed such a law last December. But there's even now an international treaty on the issue, the Council of Europe Convention Against Trafficking in Human Organs, which I think was open for signature in 2015 and has now got enough states' parties that it's in force. Although it's Council of Europe, any country in the world can sign on to it. If you're an observer state, you don't need permission. If you're not an observer state, you've got to get approval. Uh, the Costa Rica, who's not part of the Council of Europe, signed on to it. Chile, who's not part of the Council of Europe, has asked for permission. So that's positive. In terms of ethics, uh, Canada has developed a very 
good set of professional ethics on this issue now. They say if somebody's uh, going for transplant tourism, don't try to facilitate it in any way by don't give them your hospital records, don't give them prescriptions, advise them that uh, treatment on return is going to be difficult. Uh, you know, you were asking me earlier striking things that happened. This is another striking thing that happened. Before we came out uh, with our report, people who went to China for transplant tourists would get letters from Chinese doctors about uh, the, what they did, uh, what medication they used, uh, what they uh, advised afterwards, what medication they advised afterwards, uh, sort of a complete medical report. After a report came out, all the letters stopped. Gazelle Ahmed, who's a, a Malaysian doctor, who pointed that out to me, that was a, a problem for him because he was dealing with these patients. And, uh, and, and, you know, the patients themselves, I mean, they had no idea what was going on. Uh, and uh, so uh, the Canadian ethics said, uh, when you come back, your uh, treatment's going to be very difficult because we're not going to know what happened and, uh, and, and that people should be advised that somebody may be killed for their organs. So the, 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 but again, you know, this has happened in Canada, but as far as I know, nowhere else. So uh, what I would say is uh, 2006, when we started our report, there was nothing. Uh, now there's something, but definitely not enough. It's, it's taken, you know, an incredible amount of time and an incredible amount of effort. And, you know, I, I, I know one of the things, because I myself have experienced this repeatedly, and even today, when you talk about this issue, some people just say, no, I just can't accept that this is, uh, this is real. While the Holocaust was happening, there was a lot of evidence that was happening. Uh, and many people uh, didn't believe it, and some of them, of course, were anti-Semitic and uh, pro-Nazi, but you had people in the Jewish community who didn't believe it. Felix Frankfurter was a U.S. Supreme Court judge. He was presented uh, with evidence from Jan Karski, who was a Polish underground uh, worker, and he met the fellow, and he, he says, I can't believe it. And the Polish diplomat who presented him says, well, he's not lying. And, and Frankfurter said, I didn't say he was lying. He says, I just can't believe it. Hannah Arendt, who's a Jewish philosopher of totalitarianism, at the time, she says she didn't believe it. Raymond Aron, the uh, French Jewish philosopher, same thing. There were a couple people for, that escaped from Auschwitz. Uh, one of them was called Verba, and another was called Wetzler, and they wrote this Verba Wetzler report, which is extremely detailed about the plan of uh, Auschwitz, I mean, the, the physical layout of Auschwitz and what was going on. Uh, they escaped from Auschwitz while the Holocaust was still happening, so there were still Jewish communities that, if they'd fled, could be saved, and they'd present it to some of these Jewish communities. And, and, and some of the Jewish people in the community read it, believed it, and fled, and some of them read it, did not believe it, stayed and got killed. So uh, it, it's just so out of the ordinary. Uh, and of course, what you're dealing with is um, with transplantation is something that was obviously, you know, if somebody develops a more powerful machine gun, you can <laughs> believe that it might cause you some danger. But when somebody develops a better transplantation or uh, t technique or transplantation itself, uh, it's hard to believe that this would be happening because transplantation is designed for human betterment. The, the basic ethic of the medical profession is do no harm. It's just so out of the, the realm of everyday life. Uh, and, and of course, what you've got with China is complete denial, cover-up, obfuscation, counter-narrative. I mean, the most implausible sort, but unfortunately, the, the problem isn't too li little evidence, it's too much. 
the, uh, there was one uh, a doctor that I was on a panel with recently. He, he said, I myself was skeptical. Then I went through all the evidence, and I was convinced. But it took me a year to do that. Gloria Steinem, she said in another context, the, uh, uh, we've been lying to ourselves so long we don't know the truth when we see it. And, and I think that's the reality of this situation, that many people just don't, uh, it, it's so out of what they know uh, that it, it, it's just hard to believe. You know, to circle back to where we started, um, it, it is an evil yet to be seen on this planet. Well, indeed. I mean, uh, the, the Chinese uh, example of, of killing prisoners of conscience for their organs, institutionalized as a global business, has not been replicated anywhere else. You know, like anything else, you have to look at the reality in its face. You can't just function on the basis of preconceived notions. So, you know, we're, we're sitting here right beside the U.S. Capitol, um, you mentioned that there's no law on, on this issue in the U.S., which is, would seem bizarre. What, what would be your recommendation to Congress uh, to help deal with this issue? Obviously, if you kill somebody in the U.S. for the organs, you're going to be prosecuted. It should be the same if you leave the country and then come back, uh, if, if you're involved in any way, if you're complicit in any way. Uh, the, the U.S. has extraterritorial legislation in other areas. If uh, you're a war criminal or if uh, you're a criminal against humanity and you commit the crimes outside of the U.S., you can be prosecuted inside the U.S. So the U.S. needs a law that allows for prosecution for the offense, whether it's committed inside or outside the U.S. That's one thing. In terms of ethics, there's, there's two uh, categories or streams of ethics. One is uh, doctor-patient relationship, uh, uh, and, and the other is uh, country collaboration. Now, there, there's a lot of uh, concern within the U.S. about collaboration with China on national security issues, and, and there's a lot of focus on that. But there isn't the same concern about collaboration with China on organ transplantation issues. I mean, there's a lot of doctors in this country who say that China has changed, China has reformed, basically because they've uh, made some cosmetic changes uh, without the underground reality changing. Uh, like I mentioned, they've legislated saying there has to be consent, even though they haven't repealed the law saying no consent is necessary. There wasn't even a donor system in China for donation or, uh, of organs when we did our report. They've now set one up. Uh, the, the donor system generates tiny numbers and doesn't explain the transplant volumes. but. They set up a uh, kind of uh, what's called a transplant registration system where they have ranking of uh, priority, but you, it's, the data is not there. It's completely, uh, you go to the website, there's nothing there. And you've got many doctors in the U.S. saying, well, everything's fine now because of this veneer which they refuse to uh, go behind. I, I was actually at a congressional hearing with uh, Chris Smith and Dana Rohrbacker a few years back in Washington. Uh, in that building. <laughs> and I was there with uh, Francis Delmonico, uh, who was a former head of the Transplantation Society. And so Chris Smith at that time says, China says everything's all right now, uh, but they often say things that are not true. How do you know that what they're saying now is true? So the answer of Francis Delmonico is, I don't investigate, that's not my job. Uh, in 2016, how do you independently verify that when there has been such a backdrop of 
terrible duplicity, lies, deception on the part of this government. I mean, trust and verify. How, how do you do it? I'm not an apologist. I'm not here to tell you not to worry. I'm not here to verify. That's not my job. I'm here to say to you that there is a move within the country to change. I really think that the, uh, the medical profession here in the U.S. needs to start looking at the facts and not simply accept Chinese government statements about how good they are at face value. Up to now, the U.S. has only passed symbolic resolutions condemning the practice of forced organ harvesting. But just yesterday night, the House passed the first ever U.S. bill with actual means to hold the perpetrators accountable. Dubbed the Stop Forced Organ Harvesting Act of 2023, House Resolution 1154 aims to sanction anyone involved in forced organ trafficking and requires annual government reporting on such activities taking place in each foreign country. Those found to be involved will face a criminal penalty of up to $1 million and 20 years in prison. If its companion bill passes the Senate, the Stop Forced Organ Harvesting Act may soon make its way to President Biden's desk. Final thoughts as we finish? Uh, what I would say is, I mean, when you're dealing with human rights violations, uh, as I have been uh, over the decades, I've come to realize it's a never-ending business. Because what you're basically dealing with is, is human nature, uh, which uh, is itself I mean, you can change the technology, uh, but uh, human nature doesn't change that much. And to a certain extent, and, and it's not just with organ transplantation, what happens as technology develops, uh, but human nature stays the same, the capacity both for doing harm and for doing good increases. And we see that with a myriad of technologies. And very often the people who develop the technologies don't anticipate uh, the harm that could be generated by the technologies they have developed. You know, what I would say about China and Falun Gong and organ harvesting, I, I would hope and I would expect someday that it would be end and the perpetrators would be brought to justice. But I don't expect that human rights violations everywhere around the world end because it's the willingness, the capacity to do harm continues to exist and, and is going to shift uh, the details of it uh, or the mechanics of it is going to shift with each new innovation. And so uh, what I see uh, is when we're concerned about human rights uh, violations, trying to combat them, uh, we're not engaged in an effort of ending them completely forever around the world for all time, but uh, uh, that we're engaged in an effort of mitigation, uh, uh, making things maybe not as bad as they otherwise would have been. And, and so, uh, I mean, th that's maybe not a, uh, a happy conclusion where we can all walk uh, together hand in hand off into the sunset, but I, I think that's the reality of the world that we face. Well, David Maidis, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you for, again for inviting me. Thank you all for joining David Maidis and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm -hmm.